So it's it's meant to be chatty, and we just the, oh, this. this, yeah. Okay. So I just, thought you meant the book. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of dialogue in it. Yeah, sure. It is chatty. <laughs> no, it's very chatty. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'll just do a rubbish. I, I'm, I never know what to do for introductions, so I'll try and get out of them as quickly as I possibly can. You can say whatever you choose to say. I will not judge you. And you can too. You can okay. sing, chew gum. Okay, smack. good. Okay. At the same time. Um, so, uh, um, this is elegant, isn't it? I'm sitting in a room in a publishing office with Sloane Crossley. Yes, hello. Journalist. Journalist. Essayist. Sure, I will take that. Novelist. I will take, I wrote a novel, this one. A novel. What else could we add? Um... A uh, pretty piss poor tennis player. Okay. Um, interviewer. I've interviewed people myself. Oh, I'm going to leave now. <laughs> that's that. Um, yeah. That's Anyone good? Who, who was your best best interview? Um, okay, the best interview was also sort of the worst. Um, where I interviewed the Strokes for the cover of Spin. <laughs> okay. But they weren't speaking to each other. And so there are five of them, which is just a tremendous amount of people when you start having about seven hours of tape on each one of them. Um, and, they, and they weren't talking, and it was sort of upsetting because um, their lead singer is actually my exact age, like day and year. And so, uh, Julian Casablancas. Julian Casablancas, yeah. So which is weird when you meet someone... You meet someone who was born your year, that's just sort of a nice coincidence. But when it's the day, you almost start thinking of life as this sort of, like, birth as, like, this, like, firing, like, the gun for the start of the race. And, like, how far have we both gotten since we were both born the same day? And I thought, well, you're a big rock star. That's not fair. He looks really unhappy, though. He's got one of those faces. He's a little... He does have an unhappy face. Uh, but he's he's a little, um... I think he's just sort of tired of doing interviews and beleaguered by journalists and I, I honestly didn't like him very much um, and then <laughs> but then I felt for him yeah. at the very end when I said okay well that's that's it we can wind it up and he said okay well do you have enough evidence to put me away wow. I thought oh you're just so cynical about this but obviously you've been misquoted or, or misunderstood for so long you don't it doesn't matter what I say about you <laughs> That actually presents a lovely segue into my first question, ah, which I've yes. written down. But it's an interesting thought that do you get jaded? But you must be, are you almost you must be at the other end of the spectrum. You're still fresh, hopeful, optimistic, I'm fresh, I'm ready to be taken with. down. <laughs> so and shown what do you the call reality it? of the world? <laughs> Stupid book. Um, no, I mean I've had the first two books. I I was told there'd be cake, and how did you get this number? And now I have the clasp, and I have. I mean, it's three. I think if you're jaded after three books, there's something wrong with you. You know, call me when there's seven. <laughs> Is it different talking about your novel? As you say, you've written this collections of essays. Um, is it different with the novel, though? Because with essays, I guess you're talking about you're talking about contemporary life, but you're talking about yourself in a mm -hmm. in a very direct way. Right. With a novel, it's you'll be talking about yourself, but you know Other you have people. the excuse of saying no. That's not well, the, the essays are more indirect than you'd think. Okay. Um, a, you try to sort of weed out I as the most common vowel, you know, just try to get it out of there and try to have no, you know, that's sort of journalism 101, though. You don't want every paragraph to start with I, I, I. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> make a note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll go back and no, delete. <laughs> deleting. Um, but, you know, they're always, I always tried to make them about something that was larger than myself okay. um, topically. Uh, and then for this, for the novel, 
in order to make the characters different, yes, you have to pull back on the jokes that you would observe, right? So if there are two characters and they're sitting in this room and they're talking to each other, maybe I would notice something about the tape recorder and what it looks like or, or the coffee you're sipping or whatever it is. Um, but if they wouldn't notice, it's new to me to have to um, put a leash on that. Because normally if you just observe something, so you it's out, you. Observe I can observe that the coffee has dripped on, on your jacket. God, Probably Penguin because, Random House. Yes. Coffee. The budgetary cuts have hit the coffee Telling lids. <laughs> it's all over. I'm storming yes. out now. Yes. Julian Casablanca. Julian Casablanca yeah. style, yes. Um, but is it different that with an essay, you've, I suppose, you've, you've picked a subject or um, there's the world. Mm-hmm. But with fiction, I mean, there is that sense of creating something that didn't exist, doesn't need to exist. Right. Um, the you know the blank page which can be horror or or, or did you do you do you find that the thought of of becoming a novelist was that intimidating? It was a little daunting. I mean, I think that it's more daunting uh, if I put on my former publicist hat, my former my former publishing brain. You know, because okay. I worked at Random House for ten years, um, and so if I think oh. Is this going to be again back to back to music? I suppose since we were talking about the strokes, sure. um, is this going to be like when a, a you know someone has a really a hit album or a hit two albums, and then for the third or even the second they think, oh well, if you like that, you'll love my album of ukulele music. You know, <laughs> everyone come follow me, and, and no, <laughs> okay. they won't. So you worry about that, but I know that the humor. I mean, it was sort of like uh, what I took from the essays was sort of the humor and the tone. Um, and then I always knew I wanted to write a novel um, and had actually written a fairly terrible one that will never be published. Can you tell us what it's about? I want to yeah, know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it was a dark comedy about a couple whose relationship falls apart in this small town in New Hampshire. Okay. And they live above a, a sort of main store, um, which if you've ever been to a small town, you know, most people do not live... They live in homes. Okay. Um, but I had this sort of, nothing really happens. Um, and there are writers that can do that. I mean, it's, but I did not write No Exit. Um, I didn't, uh, even more modern, I'm not, you know, Rick Russo or Russell Banks tend to do that very well, that small town thing. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted this to be bigger and different from the essays in a really sort of sharp way. Is plot one of the, the big challenges of starting to, to, to think of yourself as a novelist I need, I need, some, I need some drama I need some drama okay. a little bit um, because the drama sort of comes automatically because um, life just gives you natural drama for non-fiction um, but I knew that I didn't want to just have a navel-gazing novel I mean it's a comedy of manners but it's also I wanted to have some sort of physical manifestation of that coming of age a little too late story that you see a lot either you know Claire Massoud does it really well or Mary McCarthy um, or even for TV The Big Chill you know Noah Baumbach Mm. stuff like that but I just wanted to all those people grew up I think reading the same books um, and and watching the same movies that I did in a lot of ways and I wanted something that was fun there's a there's a really gross I shouldn't say but okay there's a (laughs) there's a gross um, Oscar Wilde quote, which, you know, he's not the most affable person. He's um, sort of a jerk. So, uh, but he said, um, if I want to read something good, I'll write it. Sure. Which is an obnoxious thing to say. But I do believe that there's like a positive version of that, which is I want to pack this novel with stuff that I find interesting and fun. Does it reflect you then? I mean, I, I just interviewed a writer who talked about his career in, t- in, 
it's been two different stages. There was the stage where he wanted to be a writer and felt he had to be a kind of you know literary writer. Mm. His first couple of books are quite dark and serious. And then he, I think, had a sort of road to Damascus moment where he realised that he liked sort of slightly fizzier, pop culture Did he uh, write the Patrick Melrose novels? No, he wasn't. That, you know, no, no, no. no, no. Okay. Yeah, it just fit that. Yes. And your book is very much about this sort of idea of ideas of fakery and authenticity. Mm-hmm. For, for you, it's the idea, this kind of concoction of zippy one-liners. You know, this sort of neat uh, sort of uh, love triangle. Um, I should really get you to describe it, but rather than have me go on about it. But does that reflect you? I mean, you, you see, it's sort of upbeat social. Sort of Person, social human. Comedy. Yeah, I'm sort of um, a relatively rare bird, and then I am a very social writer. Um, so it's a problem. Which you, you mean by which I by which I mean I um, you need to spend a great deal of time by yourself to write. Okay. You need to have the you know your dark nights of the soul, and you need to be really isolated. And I found that to be especially true of fiction. Okay. Um, whereas nonfiction, especially essays, which um, periodically end. You know, you're sort of bouncing off the world and you can continue on to another thought and you have to be active in it, especially the kind of essays I write. Um, and it's not that you don't... You obviously have to be equally as observant for a novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's sort of a lifetime of observance. It's not one incident you're observing. Did you have to lock yourself away then? Was that I did. Did and you then find I it felt, difficult? I found it very difficult. And then I wrote... I wrote mostly in my apartment and then I would go to friends' houses and, and you know, tiny little writers' retreats and stuff like that. But probably the most successful one I had was in Northern California. I had a friend who works on a vineyard. <laughs> and I he put me up in sort of a shack in the, wow. in the vineyard, um, you know, with minimal heat, um, but lovely food everywhere. Um, I think of some writers that living on a vineyard, it could go badly, badly Badly, or, or, or the Peter Mayle direction, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, where it's just everything is romantic. It's something in between. Okay. Um, but it was the kind of thing where I, that's when I discovered really how I work, which is I like to get up early and write until lunch, sort of do a little bit more writing after lunch until you hit that wall where you you know, write one sentence every two hours and think I need a cookie, and you're like, it's over. I'm now doing damage to my manuscript. Um, and just when that would happen, around five or six, he would come in and say, hey, do you want to see how cork gets made? <laughs> and I'd say, yes, I do. Or, hey, we're all going to get really high and, and, and watch this movie in town. Do you want to come? And I'd say, yes, yes, I do. You know. So do you need to know so when to stop and, when to, and then go out to and see people? Yes, and... he also gave me a great gift where I was working... One one week I was working very hard um, just because I had flown there to work. And once you make all those sacrifices, you're not going to fly somewhere and sublet your apartment and make all the logistical, you know, um, arrangements only to write 500 words a day. Sure. So part of it's motivational. And, you know, to make it difficult on yeah. yourself. It's almost like paying for an expensive gym. Well, now you have to go, you know, so... Well, again, I was just thinking... <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. One of two ways, yeah. But for me, it's motivating. And okay. so I went and um, he at one point put an old-fashioned sand timer on the desk and he said, so you know how long? This is an hour. (laughs) And that's... It's very helpful. Does that tap in also to a little bit of the sort of journalistic you've got deadlines, Mm -hmm. there's word limits. Yes. Um, There's a certain satisfaction from knowing where the beginning, the middle and the end is. A a novel, I guess this novel could have been 330 pages or so, or it could have been 952 if you'd wanted it to. It was about 250 pages longer than it is now um, because one of the great gifts and uh, a blessing and a curse, I guess, of writing a novel and not being on deadline is um, what's the worst that happens if you write a bunch of crap? You know, you fix it or you delete it. 
Um, so, which is not really an option in journalism. I mean, you can write a few sentences that aren't great, but you need someone that needs to be exposed to the public very quickly. Okay. Um, whereas, you know, over the course of four and a half, five years, or however long it took me to write this, you know, you can go on different, you know, trails, and if they don't pan out, you can delete them. And was there a lot of that kind of experimenting? A little bit. There's more backstory for the characters, okay. which um, is really what got, uh, got airlifted out at the end. Yeah. I like the airlifting. <laughs> um, and was that then working in collaboration with editors, with getting responses from early readers? I mean, was there a sort of process then of, of whittling down? Again, you know, we have this image of the writer locked away in a sort of tortured yes. sanctuary. but Which is what a bit what it was like. But was there also a bit of collaboration then, and, and for, for your, particularly for a debut novel, mm-hmm. do you then get some help to...? Um, only at the end. Okay. I completed it. Um, I sold it on a, a partial, but a very large partial of the manuscript. It was about 175 pages. So okay. Normally a partial is 50. Okay. Um, and, which is also something I did not see coming, having written essays... <laughs> I thought, surely I'll write a 250-page book. Apparently not. <laughs> so were you surprised that there was some stuff coming coming out? Yes. Yes, because I... You get... There's this thing, um, this sort of idea that gets passed around uh, with fiction writers that your character starts speaking for you, and I always thought it was sort of a load of crap. Because mm. <laughs> I thought... I, I get it, but, you know, it's a bit pretentious, and it's a bit... Um, I know where they're coming from. I don't think they're real. Um, but then something really happens, and it, it switches over. And you don't necessarily think they're real, per se, but you feel very indebted to them. Did you have that? Because, in fact, the first person that's on the the podcast is Karen Joy Fowler, who's up for the Oh, booker. she's wonderful. And she was very funny about that thing. So if only they'd speak to me, you know, and tell me what if was going tell on. Me. Tell me. Right, don't make me twist. do all this for you. Exactly. Tell but, me what you want to do. But there was a little... There was something... Not exactly that, but akin to that. I bet she had that. I mean, if if she has my same um, disease <laughs> or thought part, thought process, <laughs> if we want to be positive about it, um, what happened slowly was it would happen in the negative. So I would start thinking, okay, there's three <coughs> three different characters in the clasp, and there's, I mean, there's a cast of about twenty, but there's you know three main ones, and I'd start thinking, okay, well, person A would not say this. Or they wouldn't say that. Not what they would do, but what they wouldn't do. So it was about sort of reining it in. And then really when I handed it, by the time I handed in the book, I got a little um, sort of borderline weepy because I thought these people are never going to be able to speak for themselves again. This is it. Can you tell me a bit, perhaps for the people who haven't read it, I should have asked you this probably at the beginning. Oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> so t- tell us about those three characters. Right. I mean, you mentioned before that it was a love triangle, which it is, and it's sort of a madcap love triangle. <laughs> I mean, I really... I'm a big fan of, you know, the Philadelphia story mm. movies from the 40s and 50s, and it was a bit influenced by that. Um, but you have a group of friends from college who are semi-estranged. Um, so they, they still speak to one another, but they haven't really had a real friendship in about 10 years since graduation, and they're still... Um, pigeonholing each other in the past and the three characters are Kezia who is um, a woman who works for the sort of uh, insane jewelry designer in the meatpacking district Mm -hmm. and she's just left a job at a fine jewelry company where she sort of 
felt there was meaning and art in, in emeralds and in the ancient craftsmanship of, of jewelry and has transferred to working for a woman who, you know, makes stuff out of lucite and petrified raw teeth and is very trendy um, and is sort of unhappy. Um, but everybody thinks that she's got it together and she sort of doesn't. Um, okay. And so she's... I, I sometimes think of them as the ghost of um, Christmas past, present, and future <laughs> because she's present, right? So she's just sort of trying to keep everything as is and keep her life together. Um, then the ghost of Christmas past would probably be Nathaniel. Okay. So Nathaniel is a struggling screenwriter in L.A., um, but he's very good-looking, very charming, um, and a bit of a jerk as well. I mean, he's a really fun character to write, because um, I feel like I know that guy. Okay. And so it was a <laughs> great challenge for me to have empathy for that guy, who's just sort of this womanizing person who's a lot like Guy de Maupassant in many ways. Nathaniel would be happy to be pigeonholed in the past. <laughs> for everyone to think that he's still living out the glory days of college when in fact he's not doing that well in LA and he's not doing as well with the ladies as he used to so he's the past and then for the future we have Victor the third corner of the triangle who um, just wants something new and something different uh, he's just been fired from the internet's seventh largest search engine He's a, which you know obviously is a company that was not excelling anyway. Uh, he's a bit of a sad sap, kind of an Eeyore-esque character or Job-like character where everything bad happens to him. In the first draft of this book, I mean, he has his apartment broken into, he doesn't get the girl, he's just lost his job. And in the first draft, at some point later in the book, I had him um, uh, on a bicycle in France, which is still there in the book, but I had him fall off the bike. <laughs> And I sort of could feel myself, you know, like picking him up by the, you know, if you imagine a tiny little character picking him up by the scruff of the neck and just putting him back on the bike because it was too, <laughs> too sad. Like, this is too much. So, so kind of cru- I mean, comic writers can be a bit cruel. Was yeah. It, did you sort of enjoy heaping dignity after? I did. There's a great, uh, there's, uh, when Tina Fey became the head writer of SNL, there was a New Yorker profile on her, and I'll never forget it because she said, um, you know, a normal person thinks it's funny if we dress up Will Ferrell like an old lady and push him down the stairs, mm. push him down the stairs. Um, a comedy writer thinks it's funny to push an old lady down the stairs. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's the, the sort of inclination towards darkness. But it's the three of them. Um, and then what happens in the book, uh, this won't ruin it too much, but because it happens fairly soon in the beginning, they, they reunite at this extravagant wedding in Miami for a classmate of theirs. And Victor, uh, who's been drinking a lot uh, because his life is, is not good, um, uh, falls asleep inside the house on the mother of the groom's bed. And she wakes him up the next morning, sort of lightly slapping his face, and uh, ends up bonding with him and telling him this story about a necklace that went missing during the Nazi occupation of France, which is, you know, normal morning chit chat. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he uh, decides that he's going to find it. I won't tell you what happens afterwards, but okay. uh, he, through various circumstances, becomes obsessed with the idea that it is the necklace, the physical necklace, the Guy de Maupassant based the short story, The Necklace On. And tell me about that. You mentioned similarities. Mm. In some ways, the three characters were a little bit like different bits of Guy de Maupassant. There was they a are. sort of glamorous sort of Nathaniel, the, the, the rather uh, unhappy Victor, mm-hmm. sort of, you could imagine he would be the one, poor chap would get syphilis and then syphilis and try to, try to slit his own throat and, but... Ke- and Kezia, <laughs> whose name is pronounced, with, I knew I was going to mispronounce it Kezia? It's Kezia. It is Kezia <laughs> and she was, she might be a different bit of him perhaps, perhaps actually the bit of, of Mopeson that got the writing done and didn't mess around sort of, yes. um, where did the Mopeson sort of element come from and, and was that the starting point or was, was the sort of more um, sort of campus novel turned sort of 
twenty something coming of age story. Right. Was that the was that the, 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 the opening? That story, the necklace, is such a template, and it's actually kind of funny because um, he's probably most famous for that. Um, but most of his stories have nothing to do with uh, with jewelry. There's a bit of class, but mostly he was a uh, class issues obsessed with prostitutes, mostly. <laughs> The French, <laughs> and he's most famous. I mean, Butterball. He has all these uh, different, you know, short stories that are about um, prostitutes. And he owned a parrot, actually named Jacko, who he trained to greet women with. Um, I'm gonna do a parrot voice now, so mm, okay. prepare yourself. Arr, hello, my little whore. <laughs> so yes, he's a little bit. He's a charming character, um, but. Uh, the way it came about uh, is I had actually two character sketches that I was sort of writing, and it was going to be a he said, she said, really, between Kezia and um, Victor. Okay. And they were both, I realized, separately obsessed in different ways with Nathaniel, and both a little bit in love with him in different ways. So he and was so not, he didn't Nathaniel, speak. He didn't he was, speak. Okay. Um, but then he started speaking, and he was super fun um, to write. And I then was having one of those moments where, you know, having not written fiction before or written a little bit of fiction I wrote like a short stories for, for McSweeney's or I've written fiction that hadn't been published um, you know a sort of self-doubt uh, phase and I what can help help you in that case or again I guess it goes both ways it could hurt you <laughs> is reading something classic you could either be inspired and think okay that's right I need to reformulate my brain about how this gets done and how this could could look or you could be intimidated and think I'm never going to do anything I'm not writing Lolita so what's the point um, and so I've always loved short stories um, I've always gone back to them I'm obsessed with them I probably have more short story anthologies than than actual novels in my house um, and so I just picked up um, an anthology that had the necklace in it and it's short and sweet or short and tragic and so I started reading it and was really taken with how the characters I was already writing sort of I pictured them in the story you know I, I felt that the themes were so current um, of, of striving and impressions and they, they so reminded me of a certain generation I mean I guess mm. it's millennial but um I could so see them. I could see that story happening now. And people, not the first one to have that happen. I mean, Henry James wrote a spoof story um, about the clasp. I mean, excuse me. Wow. That's absolutely untrue. About the necklace. <laughs> and physically impossible. <laughs> about the necklace uh, where it's a fake necklace that turns out to be real as opposed to a real necklace that turns out to be fake. Um, and there's been movies and plays, and, and, and there's something about the story that people keep coming back to. And in the novel, it's almost everyone has a very powerful, very personal response to it. It sounds like you, that you did too, and sort of could, ima could imagine yourself into your generation into the story. One of the words that, that chimes through the novel is, resounds through the novel, is, is real. Victor's particularly obsessed by real life, real people, mm -hmm. and then this sort of that awful phrase, real world, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever that is. But it was, is that that sense that about perhaps whether it's a generation that's digitally native wondering what's real and, and right. not real, uh, Victor works for a, for, for a kind of, um, as you're saying, a, a search engine. It, but also, you know, it's that kind of that age where we're wondering about what's our authentic self, what's our destiny going to be. Was that the, is that what it was chiming with? Those are the themes in the novel. It, it definitely was, although not, um, you know, the the reviews that have so far, you know, the feedback, especially because it came out a month ago in, in the States, um, they keep calling it um, a sort of uh, a description or analysis of, of the millennial generation. And because 
those words are generally framed in um, quite complimentary paragraphs and there have been positive reviews, I'll take it. But it's absolutely not what I meant. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's fine. Um, but it's, it's like if someone said, oh, I really love, you know, the increased water imagery. And I would sort of just say, okay, but I didn't, I didn't mean it. Um, I'll take it. It's like the Marshall McLuhan scene in Annie Hall. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but it's about that, but it is about one of the other things you said. So in other words, it's not about specifically this generation sure. of, you know, uh, you know, Snapchat, Instagram obsessed people, but it is about this time period, which if anyone has gone through it, uh, will hopefully be able to relate to the book. I mean, you've, we've all gone through that time period where you're just, you aren't sure what's real because you've been so busy trying to sort of fake make a life, you know, for yourself in a way. And I feel like they're at that time period where, you know, half of your friends have babies and the other half are drunk, you know, and it's noon in both cases. (laughs) So so it's just this idea of, um, are are these people that I've known for so long, like my family or are they strangers? Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, I think a time period where you're really questioning that. And maybe when you're 40, 50, 60, you either know the answer or you realize that the question didn't matter, whatever it is. But I feel like that is on your mind. Um, if you've ever, you know, reunited at a wedding. I mean, honestly, I think the book would hopefully chime in with people who aren't just millennial, but who have gone back for home for Christmas and found themselves behaving like a 13 year old in front of their parents. Sure. (laughs) Like never happens. (laughs) 